Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this chance to look in your word together, Lord. We, we thank you for a church family, Lord, that um, we can call ours. This is our family. We weep together. We rejoice together. We worship together. We study together. We do life together. And Lord, we only have that because of your son. He died on the cross to make us family took away our sins and gave us a standing with him forever and he has a feast and a table and an eternity all waiting for this family right here and so lord you are sweet we pray for trust we pray for faith so we'll trust you more and you'll be sweeter all the more to us the things of the world will will grow strangely dim to us as we learn to love our savior more We ask that you would use even tonight's lesson written so long ago, an event that took place thousands of years ago. But we ask that your word of God would pierce our hearts and teach us more about you, Lord. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 46 and 47 is our attempted task tonight. Uh, We will see if we can get them into the land of Egypt, particularly into Goshen uh, tonight. But as you're turning there, I wanted to just introduce this text in this way. Um, It's a process as we grow in faith and we grow in this new life um, that we have in Christ to learn to trust his divine purposes. It's easier said than done, isn't it? It probably takes a lot of failure on our part, a lot of grace on God's part to get us through things. But there is great victory when we learn to trust God for his divine purposes despite our sin. He takes us through things that, um, that we would never get through without him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, they're down towards that, um, that opening prologue of of Paul's that's so drenched in the sovereignty of God, particularly about our salvation. We know this text well. But as it closes out some of those thoughts, by the time it gets to verse 11, it says this, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's an all I have circled in my Bible. As you all know, I love to do that. Because I come and I meditate on those alls. According to his purpose, who works all things after, listen to this phrase, the counsel of his will. He knows what he's doing. Verse 12 says, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So we would trust the counsel of his will, no matter what we're going through, that we would trust that we would stop sinning, we would obey him, and follow that counsel of of God's will. And in the end, there's great praise. There's great praise. I think that's what this passage is about. 22 years of death, lying, deceit. (laughs) But one guy trusted the counsel of God's will. And that one person who trusted the counsel of God's will, no matter how bad and ugly it looked like, became a savior to a nation, (laughs) in a sense. And it reminded me this week... You may be surrounded by, I don't know if your family knows the Lord, or, or, or maybe you work in an environment that there's very few Christians, but if just one will follow the counsel of God's word, the counsel of God's will, oh, what can happen? 
The nation of Israel is established because of this. Because one man trusted the counsel of God's will. So today's passage, we're going to look at why new life is so great and what that does for us. And you're going to see new life flood back into Jacob. You're going to see the blessings of obedience when we obey how God blesses and gives God an opportunity to bless us. You're also going to see godly justice. How a man who loves God can handle worldly issues rightly. And then you're going to see that there's a promised land. There's a greater place that is awaiting us. Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles open to chapter 46, I actually want to take you back for just a few verses as we look at this first point. Verse 45, verse 26. And our first point is this. The good news means new life. The good news means new life. I didn't get to flush these last few verses out uh, like I wanted to last week because of time, but look at verse 26 through 28. Right there as 40, chapter 45 ends, he says, they told him saying, Joseph is still alive. These are the brothers, right? They've come back to Canaan and, and they traveled back and they said, Joseph is still alive and indeed he is the ruler over all of the land of Egypt. But he was stunned and he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. After 22 years of the presumed knowledge of a tragic and, and what was presumed to be a pretty gruesome death of his son, Jacob now hears that Joseph's alive. I, I'm not sure you and I can probably comprehend the emotions of this. This is a teenage boy who the father was told was ripped to pieces by a wild animal. 17. There's been some tragedy. We've seen that in this church of young, young people who have died through the years. But can you imagine this moment? Jacob, for all intents and purposes, has been dead, hasn't he? Up to this point. And now this huge mixture of emotions, this joy and sadness and disappointment and loss and, and, and overwhelmness must flood him at, the, at this moment. His most loved son, from his most loved wife, who was horribly killed as a teenager, is alive now. And what's interesting is joy overcomes that 22 years of sorrow very rapidly. I think that's what God does for us at times. He can help us overcome sorrow. Notice in verse 27 it says, The spirit of their father Jacob revived. The Hebrew has the idea of something coming to life again. It's this fascinating little phrase there. He came to life. So Jacob had been walking around like a dead man. And, and think about that. He was just dead to things. The boys, remember as they talked about going back, you know, Dad, come on, wake up, we have to do this. He was dead to almost everything. But here the Bible says that he had new life in a way come to him. And in a sense, his son had come back from the dead. Think about that. In a sense, his son had come back from the dead. Remember we told you that Joseph was often recognized as a type. Here was one who's come back to dead to save them. Sound familiar? 
Notice that that reflects even our Lord who came back from life to be our Savior. I, I also thought about the disciples, particularly in the night, the night after his death and the resurrection and all that's taking place and, and they seem to be hiding away. They're, they have no zeal anymore. There's a great fear over them. They seem to be spiritually lifeless after the death of Christ. But once they see him, and the other disciples sometimes see him, and you see phrases like, he's alive. See, there's new life back in these guys. And, and, and that must have been what Jacob saw. And brothers and sisters, I can't help but think of what new life does for a believer. When you, when you first realize that Christ beat death for you, and, and you believed and God granted you salvation, there, there is no words that can actually compare to what you went through when you realized, I'm a new person. My sins are gone. My debt's been paid. Hell no longer has its grip on me. What a beautiful thing of new life, isn't it? But you and I kind of give that up sometimes. Sin, sin robs us of that. We venture down places where we should not go, and, and new life doesn't look so sweet sometimes. And yet when we are reminded that there is a God, and he beats death, and he beats sin, when we're reminded of that, that new life reminds us, and those songs we sing, how precious it is to sing of a Savior, it reminds us of our new life. And I think this is just a little glimpse here as Jacob, as the Hebrew says, came alive. I trust when you hear God's word, it makes you come alive. And you think about new life. When, when you and I are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God becomes very clear again. You want to tamper with sin? You want to run around and do things that you know God does not want you to do? The word of God becomes a little bit blurry at times because our minds are consumed with things that don't belong to God. And so here we start to see a clarity. Look at chapter 46, 1 through 4. And we'll see what's happening now to Jacob. So Israel set out, that's Jacob, with all that he had. And he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Well, here we find Jacob now back at his headquarters, probably in Hebron. But the family um, livestock business is scattered because things are thin. You can imagine with the famine, they've got li livestock scattered all over Canaan, finding every well and every place there's water to graze and to drink. And the brothers are most likely sent out to gather those livestock, and they're headed for Beersheba. I, I, put a, I have a map. Um, Troy, can you throw that up for me? Because I want you to, it, it helps when you kind of see what they're at. Here we go. Where, where they're at, this is... This is Beersheba right here. They're probably in Hebron right here. And, and Jerusalem's going to be down here later. You're going to see that develop. But this is, this is actually from Exodus. We'll get there in a little bit. So, so here, Jacob, Israel, makes his way down to Beersheba. And this is where he prays. And this is where he has a vision. And God tell, tells him to go to Egypt here. But all of this area is Canaan. All of this land. It's very, very fertile in here. 
And doubtlessly the boys had the flocks all scattered out. They had several houses. We've talked about that through Genesis. Several ranches. And that's where they are located. And they're going to start to make their way this way through this passage. And I'll come back and kind of show you a few more things. You can leave that up, um, Troy. And so doubtlessly they had suffered some some loss through this time, but, but still, it seems as though Jacob's a, a very, very wealthy man, and he has, he has a massive livestock to gather, and he, he, has, he needs lots of manpower. But, but while Jacob is possibly waiting for his sons and all of this livestock and all these servants and everyone that was going to bring this there, God begins to speak to him. Notice that there in these first four verses. And because Jacob's alive again, his spirit has been revived, he's now hearing God's word. His sin of, of not trusting God, his sin of probably anger with God or frustrated with God had caused him not to probably hear him. And, but now he is, he is trusting God's word again. And Elohim is the word here that begins to speak to him and graciously reaffirms his covenant. The covenant he gave to his father, Isaac, and to his grandfather, Abraham. And we, we just have to stop and think about this. This is a God who keeps his promises despite us. And I hope you understand that. That isn't a license of sin. That isn't let's go out and live our way because God's going to come through anyway. But despite us, God always keeps his promises. And he is so trustworthy and it helps us repent and helps us come back to a God who will not fail. These promises included an exit plan. Did you notice that? I will go down with you to Egypt, and verse 4, and I will surely bring you up again. There's a promise to get out. And, and this is just reiterated, same thing he told Abraham in Genesis 15. This is where I believe Abraham came to faith in verse 6. He believed and God credited to righteousness to him. And in that same time frame, as he's outside his tent, Abraham, God promises him that they'll have, he'll have descendants and they, and they will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Remember this in Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14. But he says, I'll judge that nation whom they serve and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So this is a promise that Abraham had and, and he reiterates that promise to Jacob and Jacob believes him. Notice is verse 5 through 7. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and the little ones and their wives in the wagons with which Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, Jacob and all of his descendants with him. Verse 7, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, Jacob has a now a clear understanding of God's will. He has a clear decision to obey, and he immediately, and immediately with confidence, follows God's plan. He's called Israel again. That's important. Every time we see God calling him Israel, he's, he's in a pattern of obedience. And again, he recognizes the hand of God, and he's willing to, think about this, he's willing to leave the promised land to obey God. He knows that God has something better. And, and, and think about this. Um, I, I wrestled with this a little bit. 
if Joseph Joseph doesn't go through what he goes through, and Joseph isn't discovered as the ruler of Egypt, and, and if those boys don't go through the testing that they went through, and if they don't come back and tell Jacob that Joseph was there, maybe Jacob would still have hardened his heart, but God used all of those circumstances to woo him down to Egypt where he would protect him. He still had to believe him, but God was in part of all of that. Because remember, Jacob's dead. He's acting like a dead man. He just wanted to stay there and die. But God has aroused him again. And so Jacob now assembles this massive enterprise, and he's headed to Egypt. And so Joseph had sent word to Jacob and was going to meet him in the land of Goshen. And so I wanted to talk about this just for a little bit. So they're here. This is, of course, the Mediterranean Sea. Everything's draining this way. Uh, Here's the Nile. Everything's draining towards this. Uh, The flood, certainly the Genesis flood, would have taken all this great silt from some of the mountains that are here and would have drained it down towards here. And this would make Goshen, this whole place right in here is the land of Goshen here. Now, this is no piece of cake. This doubtlessly took them a month plus. It may be longer because they were taking herds. But they made their way along here. And as I studied this a little bit, all of these rivers drained down here, which, which made grazing land along this sea. This is a lake right here with this all bled. If you know springs, they'll bleed into that. And so they're, all, they're probably feeding their cattle, their livestock, their sheep, their goats, all along here as they make their way finally over here to the land of Goshen and make their way into that place. Now, the land of Goshen is an amazing place. Um, it's some of the most fertile ground in the world. All of this... All of this Nile drains through here and then is all irrigated property down through here. And I'll talk about that just in a moment. So that's where they're headed. Um, It's such a lush river and they developed in the Nile area um, outstanding irrigated land. And, and I know we don't see it here, and maybe if you've lived in Florida or the south most of your life or even the east coast, um, irrigation doesn't seem to be as prevalent here. But if you live out west, where, where we're from, you don't survive without water, and particularly uh, irrigation systems. Um, a good example for, for us, when we moved from our, our big ranch and we were moving back towards town and um, I was going to go to seminary and start a new church and all of that, we, we went to a place where we knew there was irrigated property. And I bought a ranch that the property was amazing and the house was terrible. So I had to walk my wife carefully through that. I'll never forget that I walked in. Hun, you got to have vision here. Any wives ever hear that? <laughs> the house was a nightmare. But the land was phenomenal. And what grabbed my attention was it had the first water right off of a main ditch. And the first water right means there's no loss of water going down the ditches. And so you have this full head of water. And if you have water, you can do amazing things. You can double hay production. You can graze more. You can graze more heavier. It's amazing when you have water what you can do, especially in dry, arid areas. And so I bought the ranch because of the water right that was on it. Because it developed so much grass, so much hay, and we could run more cattle on it. Now the house, we had to get back and fix that. You can fix a house, but you can't fix water. And one of the things they had done back after World War II, Corps of Army Engineers went into this particular area in Northern California and developed this amazing canal system that carries millions and millions of gallons of water to to, uh, livestock-rich areas in order to fertilize that ground and help that ground grow so you could graze lots, lots of livestock. Well, that's what they did in the land of Goshen. Now, this is, this is 
thousands of years ago. And these people are brilliant. Remember, they built the pyramids without hydraulics. <laughs> so these are amazing people. And what they had done in this lush valley was irrigate this to the hilt. And, and the land was an amazing land. It was known for its irrigation, for its producing of grain, for its grazing of livestock. It was the most luscious part of Egypt. Now the cities that were there were Zon and Ramses were the major cities. And Goshen was about 50 miles north of the capital city, which would have been down here at Heliopolis. That, that would have been Om. That's where Joseph lived, and he married, he married the daughter of the priest there that Pharaoh gave him there. So he's down here, but the, but the uh, family's going to be up in that area right there. Now, Goshen is the capital city, so that kept Joseph there. But Joseph knew he needed to put his family somewhere where they would be saved. Now, this verses here also talk about the logistics of this operation. Here, they're trying to move. I want you to kind of get your mind around some of this. I think when we read this, and if you're not familiar with livestock and, and ranching and all that, you think, well, you grabbed a couple of goats and you threw them on a wagon and you left. Uh, this is massive. And, the, and everything that goes with it, there's farming implements that they had, even though they didn't have tractors, of course, at that time. There were still in, in, implements to plow with and harnesses and equipment to hook to oxen. You can only imagine what they had. Joseph was a wealthy man, so they had gained certain, certain family possessions, all their servants and all their servants' families. And so when, when the Bible says that Joseph and Pharaoh had sent wagons to help, don't just think like they showed up with a U-Haul. Joseph had the resources of the nation. He sent a massive group of people to go help this get done. To try to move an enterprise that, that roamed over the greater part of Canaan. He had to move that all the way down um, over to Egypt. And so it's another take. I was thinking about it today um, as I was working. And I, and I remember when we moved. Jeannie, I remember this when we moved from the Fort Bidwell Ranch to our Cottonwood Ranch. Um, she had a lot of babies at that time, but so I was out doing a lot of those things, and, and it was crazy because I remember just for almost two weeks straight, I made hauls because it was, it was a full day drive there and a full day drive back, just hauling stuff, tractors, and just all day back and forth, didn't sleep for two weeks, just in order to get the ranch cleared out to get it, get the ranch and the operation back down there. Um, it was exhausting. I felt like I was going to die, and it was just a, 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 just a smidgen compared to what was going on here. But you know, when you're following God. When you're following God's will, difficult things seem a lot easier. And in that time in our life, God had opened an opportunity for me to go to seminary. And I was going to meet the famous Brian Sheely. And he was going to be one of my profs. And, and God was doing something. And so the move was difficult and there was a lot to it. But there was joy because God had, he had his plan had become very clear. And we were following that. And as God moved us out here, he did the same thing. All the difficulties and all the hurdles that seemed in a way, he gets you through those times. And you can see what God is doing with Jacob. This was no easy undertaking, and the narrative just speaks pretty quickly about it, and yet there was a massive plans that went through this. And what, what's, I think, most fascinating as you think about this is in the middle of all of this is the seed of Christ. The one who gives true new life is in this and God is directing this to bring this seed into the land of Goshen to protect them. Now, the Bible says that there are 70 key figures here and he wasn't gonna let anything happen to this infant nation but there's 70 key figures. In verses eight through 27, I'm not gonna read all that for the sake of time, but this is the list. This is the family members that, that play the significant role in the building of this nation. This is the birth of this nation. Now, just to sum it up, you can see that Leah, she had Reuben, 
uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. Uh, Zelpath had Gad and Asher, if you just follow down through here. Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, and Bilhah had Daniel and Naphtali. Now, notice this real key verses. Notice verse 11. This is the tribe of Levi. Now, this would, where the priests would come, and you can maybe recognize some of these names as you remember reading through your Old Testament, Gershon and Kohath and Merai. These, these are names that we'll see. These are descendants of these men, and we'll see as we go down through the Pentateuch that these are family members, and, and the Levitical tribe will come from these men here. But verse 12 is a very important one as well. This is the son of, sons of Judah. This is the line of Christ. And anytime you study the line of Christ, you're going to see see some of these names in there. Ur and Onan were the sons that died in Canaan. God struck them because they didn't obey. But then Shelah and Perez and Zerah, these are all men that you will see whenever you study the line of Christ, you'll see these names. And it's important that it's here because it reminds you that God is going to bring this Messiah through this individual, Judah, here. And then you can follow it down and you begin to see all these 70 souls. So I just made a breakdown out through this. Jacob, Jacob and his 12 sons, I'm going to tell you what makes up the 70 here. He has 51 grandsons, two which had died in Canaan of Judah. He has four great-grandsons. He has one daughter, Dinah, and one granddaughter, Sarah. And so the number, the number is 70. Now, it's interesting. I, I just wrote down a few things that I could remember about 70. They're, they're, it, they're, the number 70 seems to be somewhat significant in the Old Testament, particularly around the nation of Israel. It's tied to the 70 nations first established by God. Genesis chapter 10, you can count them. There's 70 nations that God recognizes early on there. Deuteronomy 32, 8 reiterates that. There's 70 elders who are chosen by God to help lead Israel in Numbers chapter 11. There's 70 years of captivity that were used to punish Israel's disobedience. You can see that in 2 Chronicles 36, 21. There's 70 weeks of determining the finished transgression of Israel. And of course, there's a lot of eschatology built into that of understanding those 70 weeks and how those flush out, but it's mentioned there. There's also 70 Sanhedrin rulers over, over the nation in, uh, in, in um, the New Testament. And then Christ sends out 70 witnesses uh, in, his, in his earthly ministry to share the gospel and, and to heal and to share of the coming of Christ. So uh, if you can think of any others, but those were some of them. Let's move on. Second point, obedience opens the door to blessing. Obedience opens the door to blessing. Now this is not prosperity gospel in any way, but I wanna make sure as we look at this um, that obedience does give God something to bless. This is one of the things we talk about often in our own personal lives and in our counseling ministries as well. Give God something to bless. He doesn't bless unrighteousness. He doesn't bless wickedness. He, he's holy and perfect and, 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 he, and he wants to bless these things and you can see this. And so um, the lack of obedience brought discipline. For 22 years, Jacob and these 11 brothers, they suffered under disobedience. But now joy has returned and God is providing a path of blessing. Look at verse 28 with me through 34. Now he sent Judah before him, we'll talk about that in a minute, to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen and Joseph prepared his chariots and went out to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a long time. And then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers, 
and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father, father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth and even until now both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to Egyptians. Now, what's happening here? Well, certainly it's, it's interesting in verse 28. Uh, they are on the way. And as they're on the way, Judah is sent forward to meet Jacob. Now remember, um, excuse me, Joseph. Joseph's down here. He's down there. They're cutting across here. And so Judah is sent ahead to, to go meet probably somewhere in there. He's going to meet uh, Joseph. Now there's, there's a new relationship there between these men. Je, uh, Judah had stepped up and had worked hard with Joseph and had been led that charge of repentance as he, as he finally revealed himself to them. And so, so Judah here is now taking a role and he's sent out. And I think that's interesting, isn't it? Um, there's some comparisons there. Judah um, goes ahead to prepare for the family. Well, Christ goes ahead and prepares for us as well. And he does that. He, he goes out and prepares the way. And so Judah is becoming this clear leader in the family. And, he's, and, and Jacob now trusts him and he's, he's going ahead of them. But notice when Joseph and Jacob finally meet. Notice in, in verse 29. This is a precious moment here. Here there is this uh, term, falling on the neck. It, 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 for us... Um, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, what would be coming across in the Hebrews, but this is, this, is a, this is an amazing, powerful restoration type of act. It is when something has been broken for the longest time and, and brought back together and healed, there's an embrace that, that lasts a long time. And you'll see this over and over where Joseph falls on his brother's necks, and particularly in Benjamin. It is a, is a reconnection of a bond. Um, and if you've ever had a, a family issue that was you were separated for a long time and God brings restoration, I've just experienced this in the last few weeks, it is the sweetest thing. The embrace is amazing. And, and here, this 22 years of separation, the last time Jacob had seen his son wearing this coat that he had given, he was healthy, a 17-year-old, strong young man that he entrusted with the care of the, of the operation was to check on his brothers. That's the last time he saw him. Remember, you could just see that scene as he rides away or walks away. That was the last time Jacob ever saw him. And all he heard was he was torn to pieces. Can you imagine can you imagine this powerful reunion here? And, and, and notice Jacob's thoughts here, and I think I get this. Life is complete for me now, as I think what Jacob is saying. He, he falls on his neck and weeps, and verse 30, then Israel says to Joseph, now let me die. I've seen your face. I don't need anything else. Restoration is a, a very powerful thing. The first time we saw a restoration after church discipline was in our first church in Fort Bidwell, California. There, um, uh, this young lady had gone through discipline from immoral behavior and years had gone by and, and eventually God brought her to repentance. 
And, and I always tell the story because it was the sweetest thing in the world. We worked with her. The elders worked with her. She, it was obvious she was becoming to repentance. We, walked, we spent three months kind of walking through her with that. And eventually, we, she, and, uh, we want, she wanted to, and we as elders wanted to, she stood before the church and asked the forgiveness of the church. I remember it was like a choir. Our church just stood up in unison. Without me saying anything, as she closed, I was there standing with her as she wept and repented to the church and asked the church's forgiveness. And, and, and the church just stood up like a choir, like a choir and formed a line and, and one after another just kind of fell on her and hugged her in the weeping. And I remember sitting in the front row as just a young pastor in my 20s. And I, and I remember sitting there thinking, God, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you can take me home. This is rare. You don't see this often. Most people don't repent. They just get harder and they run from God and, and so forth. And I remember just weeping in the front row watching this young church that wasn't very old forgive this woman and embrace her and take her in. And so when I see this scene, I, I, I remember that. I, I thought, Lord, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Many pastors have spent many, many years in the ministry and never seen that. And so I looked at that and I said, Lord, I'll just go home. And I I can sense this with Israel. I'm good. (laughs) Let me go home. Verse 31, Joseph says to his brothers here and his household, I I got a plan here. (laughs) Um, I got to prepare you. And so I think what he's doing in verse 31, he's preparing the family for this formal meeting that has to take place with Pharaoh. You've got to understand this family needs a formal visa. They, they must be nationalized in order to become part of this, this country's permanent um, economy. Yes, the Pharaoh said bring him down, but what if he changed that mind his day? And so Joseph knows the laws of the land very well. He's ready to equip his family as they're going to stand in the presence of Pharaoh. Now, he knows that he must do a little politicking here. Because he wants, he wants his family in the most protected and most uh, prosperous place. And so Jacob and his brothers are stressed their occupation. I want you to stress your occupation. It's, loath- it's loathsome to the Egyptians, but I want you to stress it. Now that might have been confusing for them for a little bit, but let me just give you a little bit of history why this was happening. Now, history tells us that the ruling family during this time was this Hykos, Hykos dynasty. Um, many scholars believe that they weren't even truly Egyptian at this point that were ruling. This was a ruling family, a, a dynasty that was ruling over Egypt at this time and at the time of Joseph. Later, the dynasty is going to be replaced 400 years later, and you're going to find that Ramsey is now. Now, that's where they're going into Ramsey's backyard. And so you can, you can kind of think what's going on here. And, and as we get to Exodus chapter 1, you're going to see a verse in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. And the Bible's going to say this. A Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. So everything's going to change. But right now, there's this Hykos high, this dynasty that's overseeing that. It's really interesting. Now, the, the, this dynasty was known as shepherd kings. So they had their hand in livestock as they probably took over Egypt. And and it seems that even their origin is more from Shem than from Ham, which the Egyptians later would come from Ham. This might have been Shemites, which is the same descendants of the nation of Israel. And isn't that interesting that God would have a dynasty that's from Shem versus from Ham at this point? (laughs) That's, That's pretty amazing as God had worked that out. Now, shepherding and livestock raising was considered very lowly occupation. And there's a reason why. Um, Egyptians 
thought it was beneath them. They, they were very conscious of their dignity. The early uh, cultic religions of the time emphasized uh, sanitary conditions. So, so having dirt, dust and dirt and manure, that wasn't for them. These were very, they, they pride themselves in, in that they were clean. So Joseph knew exactly what the family needed. So he says, here's what I want you to do. In order to get the place we want and where we need to be and, and have you protected, tell them your shepherds. Tell them your shepherds. Now, look at verses 1 through 10. We want to see how this plays out in verse, chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that he had. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm in chapter 47, sorry. 47.1. Then Joseph went up to, and told Pharaoh. So he's already told his brothers and his dad, here's what we're going to do. Now he's in front of Pharaoh and he says, My father and my brothers and their, lo- and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan and, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to the Pharaoh. And then the Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds. But we and our father." Our fathers. So there's a history of us being shepherds. He's letting them know. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for our, flo- our servants' flocks, for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh says to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at their disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you Know of any capable men among you, then put them in charge of my livestock. And then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Isn't that sweet? And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how, how many years have you lived? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attended, uh, attained the years that my father lived during the days of our sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out of his presence. Now, a little bit lengthy passes, but let me sum some of those up. When Jacob is brought before Pharaoh, um, there's this cordial, gracial, but it's a legal interchange that's happening here. And this is what we have to understand. So the short explanation is given of the family struggle. He says, this is what we've been through. The famine was bad. And there's a submission in verse 5 to Pharaoh. Notice in verse 5, your father and your brothers have come to you. He's, he's, Joseph is saying this. There, there's, it's, a, it's a term of submission. We've come to you. We're not taking anything. We're coming to you. We're putting ourselves underneath you. Verse 6 is actually the legal transaction that takes place here. He grants them, Pharaoh here grants the official visa in a sense, right? The permanent permission to be citizens in the land. And not just any land, but notice he says, give them the best land. And that's what God is doing. He's putting them in the best spot and he's protecting them. I'll see if I can give you just a little bit of word picture. God takes his infant nation and he puts them in the center of this where he can totally protect them. And he's going to do several things here to show that. And I love that illustration because that's us in Christ. Uh, God does not look at us apart for seeing Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ has forgiven your sins and you're a new creature, we are in Christ, completely protective. And there's such an illustration here. Put him in the best land. There's nothing better than Christ, right? Put him in the best there where they can be protected and they can be prosperous. They can, can, they can fulfill my will. And God does that with you, friends. 
He takes you and he puts you in the best place. And, and here, I love this illustration, they're there. They're in the, they're in the, the best water, the, the, best, the best grass. They're growing in all of this picture. I love this. Now, in the middle of this exchange, Pharaoh seeks out the family to manage his own herds. Now, why would that be important? Well, see, this allows the Pharaoh to keep his hands free from this lowly occupation. But more importantly, now listen to this, recognizes Jacob's family as the keeper of the king's food. Now, that's pretty significant. These are going to be, he allows this family to come in, take the best land, bring their own livestock so they can grow their own personal enterprise, but at the same time, they become the keeper of the royal food, the breeding stock of the pharaoh. Now, this is just a further blessing of God as it adds another layer of protection around this fledgling nation. Don't mess with these people. That's the Pharaoh's shepherds. They're not just any shepherds. They're the Pharaoh's shepherds now. Now, I think that's powerful. He has given them position and protection. Notice in verse 11 and 12 what he does. So Joseph settled his father and brothers and gave them possession of the land of Egypt and in the best of the land, the land of Ramses. We're going to see them in a few chapters into Exodus. And, a, and a, as a pharaoh had ordered. So Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all of his father's household with food according to their little ones. So Goshen has become somewhat of this almost private province, right, to provide for them. They're, they're, they're kind of walled off. One, they're shepherds, so the rest of the Egyptians are staying away from them. Two, they have the, the Pharaoh's flock there, and so they're caring for that. It's just this double layer of protection for this little nation that's only 70 people that as the exodus starts is going to be anywhere from two to four million people in this land, all free from all kinds of problems for these first 400 years. Now, this dynasty that was ruling this Hykos dynasty, uh, many historians believe that, that the Egyptians, um, they disliked this profession of, uh, of raising cattle. So, I, again, what I'm trying to point out here is through this, all of these circumstances where it's not the Ramses family, it's another dynasty, all of this is giving them geographically and political protection for the next 400 years. And Joseph, although he was respected and honored throughout Egypt, he's now part of the royal family, so he's down in the city of On. He's down farther there. But make no mistake, God has blessed this nation and has put him in a great place. Now, now we turn back to the character of Joseph here, and we've got to move quickly. Uh, number three, godly character and justice creates good government. Look at verses 13 through 17. Families there, uh, everybody's settled in. They're taking care of the, the kings, the pharaoh's flocks. Um, all of that, they're in protection, but Joseph still has a job to do, and what Joseph does is remarkable here. Look at verse 13. Now, there was no food in the land because the famine was very severe, so the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? 
for our money is gone. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock and, and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave food in exchange for their horses and flocks and their herds and the donkeys and fed them with food in exchange for all the livestock that year. So now there's one of these years where the money's run out and now they're turning to something else. Now, I think what's amazing about the godly character and the justice here is it really creates good government. Um, and so Joseph's rule, he, he's the ruling arm of Pharaoh and, he's, and he is to exercise authority over all areas. The grain was so plentiful for those, those years of prosperity, all of that now has made grain a commodity. You know what a commodity is, right? I mean, this is valuable stuff now. And so Joseph has this wisdom, thanks to God, and he begins now to handle it rightly. Joseph could have jacked up the prices and demanded more than what the grain was worth, right? We see that around here. You know, uh, <laughs> um, a hurricane will come in and there's guys selling bottles of water, you know, $20 a case. And the government kind of frowns on that, but that stuff happens, right? Well, I got a commodity. I have water. You need it. What are you willing to pay? Joseph doesn't do that. What's amazing about this, this man, he has such godly character. He knows justice. And so Joseph kept the currency stable. He kept it stable throughout this and he maintained a fair price for all of these goods. And when the money ran out, rather than inflating prices or lowering uh, the, the currency rate, Joseph holds the line and grants loans at the current value against their livestock. And so they're able to trade that in at a fair market price and gain the grain they needed. Now, notice verse 18. The next year, when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from our Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are the Lord, my Lord's. We've used money, we've used our cattle. There's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for food and we and our land will be slaves to the Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may be may not be desolate. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was so severe upon them, thus the land became Pharaoh's. Now, as land became property of, of the kings, um, no, verse, for, here in verse 8, after the ownership of the livestock was transferred, now Joseph grants liens against property. So he's, he's going to use that. He's still keeping the currency the same, and he obtains the land. Notice verse 21 through 22. As the people re, were, uh, were removed them to the city, so he, he takes them out from all over. He moves them closer to the city, closer to some of the major farming grounds, from one end of Egypt's border to another. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priest had an allotment from Sarah, Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So here in verse 21 and 22, the land becomes property of the king. So he moves these people into more concentrated areas where he can care for them, where they can farm locally. He doesn't take the land from the priests because they're going to need, their priests are going to serve these people in whatever religious way. But then verse 23, he does something amazing. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you that you may go sow the land. Now, the famine's ending. He's got them through this. Look what he does here in verse 24. As the harvest, at the, at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to the Pharaoh, and four fifths you shall, shall be 
your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your household as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight, my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made a statue concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh. So what, what he does here is marvelous. Ultimately, the land and all the families were owned by the royal household. They, they now have them. There's the only way to get through this massive recession and famine that was going on. They had to hawk everything, but Joseph bought it at fair price. He'd never cheated one person. And the people were treated fairly under that. And so he sets up this plan of how to, 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 to take care of and restore this area. So again, Joseph uses this 20% tax, flat tax, so they could pay back their debts and live on 80%. So he says, look, we're gonna give you seed. We're gonna let you farm here. We're gonna give you land. We're gonna let you farm that. It's ours right now, but we're gonna let you be restored. And so instead of saying, well, we want half, he says, look, give us just 20%, 80% for you so you can get restored. People don't do that. When you're in a hole and you got trouble, they're going to loan you to the hilt and it's going to cost you everything. But Joseph didn't do that. Joseph's wisdom, the, the wisdom that God had gave him, was now going to save this nation and revitalize this nation. And, and, and notice in this text, one of the things, how grateful these people are. Verse 20, you have saved our lives. There's, there's gratitude here. There's no grumbling. There's no complaining. They're grateful and they all want to work. Because godly men were leading them. Godly men had the helm, particularly Joseph, had the helm of this nation. And from there, this nation is restored. People are working. They're giving a flat tax back to the nation. They're restoring the things they had lost during, and Joseph was the man that put that all together. Now, the last, just the last section, I gotta quit with this. Number four, take, take me to the promised land. Look what happens here. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt and Goshen and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. So this is, the famine is long gone here. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years and when the time of Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I found favor in your sight, place your Place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but I will lie down with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said to him, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And so he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. So this is a precious point right here 17 years have passed the famines maybe been forgotten the people are being restored their businesses are growing again Jacob's enterprise has just blossomed under the blessing of God and this passage records this sweet interaction with Jacob and his promised son Joseph and both of them think about this both of them firmly believe in the promise of God but God is God's word has been spoken to them and they know it and they believe it and they knew, and I want you to catch this, they knew they were not part of this world, this Egyptian world. And I think it correlates to, to they knew they were not a part of this world system. Take me to the place God promised us. They knew that this promised land was given. They knew it was even greater than the land of Goshen. 
You know, you may, God may be blessing you and you may live in some kind of prosperity, but let me say this as we tie this together and finish. There's nothing compared to the promised land for believers. Heaven awaits us where there is no need of sun or moon because the sun will brighten all, shine in all, its radiance, all his radiance. There will be no tear. There will be all healing. The, the rivers of life will flow through it. And Jacob and Joseph, they want to make this statement, even with their dead bodies, do not leave me here. Jacob makes Joseph swear to him, don't bury me here, bury me in the promised land. This is what God said, we believe in God's promise. Joseph at his own death, you remember this, we'll get to this when we work through Exodus. Um, When they leave, he had made the, the leaders of Israel swear to him, promise before his own death, you take my bones with you. God has a better land. And Peter and Paul and the, and, the, and the New Testament apostles pick up on this and they say, we don't live here. We are strangers. We are aliens. And brothers and sisters, such a reminder as you see these great patriarchs here, the principle is clear. This is not our home. God has something greater. He's provided it through Christ. Don't hold tightly to the land of Goshen. Things are good. Maybe in your life, I don't know. Maybe you have plenty of grandchildren. I, you have plenty of money. I, I don't know what your circumstances are. But it doesn't even pale to what God has for us in the future. Don't hold tightly. There's a promised land coming. And there may be a famine in your land right now. Some of us experience that. Hayward mentioned this tonight. He said some of you may be going through something difficult. You may be going through a famine, but trust God, believe him. If you venture into sin, it'd be hard to hear him. You will not enjoy the new life he has given you. New life will seem like an old life. That's what sin does. Experience new life, repent of sin, turn from it, walk with the Lord, be quick, be quick to recognize your sin. And new life would be great and you won't hold, you won't white knuckle these things that we'll leave behind. Oh, believers, we cannot be like the rest of the world. We cannot be like the rest of the world who lust after things that will perish here. Yes, we need necessities, and God is great, and he puts roofs over us, and he gives us food, and Paul says, with this you should be content. There's a greater place coming. Church, have biblical vision. Look to something greater. This is the message of this. That's what Jacob did. That's what Joseph did. Don't bury me here. Take me with you. Amen? Father, thank you for this, Lord. Good reminder. You, you're such a kind God. You restore relationships when people repent. When they obey your word, you give them sweet times. They hear the text says they fell on each other's neck. There was a great embrace. There was great restoration, Lord. After 22 years of lies and deceits and sin, all is forgiven. And they're moving forward, Lord. And Father, in all of this, we find godly men working in a very godless world. Particularly Joseph, who, who holds a biblical standard. He does not cheat but anyone. He, he, he cares for even the lost. And he meets their needs, Lord. He's a great example for us. And then, Lord, as him and Jacob wind up their life, they knew that this was not their home. They knew this was not the promise of God, Lord. This wasn't everything. This is, this is just a place we pass through. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we would have the same. Give us eternal vision. Give us eternal insight to see what we cannot see right now through your scriptures, that you have something greater for us. Lord, if there are those who don't know Jesus Christ here today, Lord, if they've just heard about him or, or think he's some historical character, Lord, give them understanding tonight. Flood their mind with the truth that Jesus Christ died, took their penalty on the cross so that they would know Christ and they would have a new life. The old is gone. The new has come. Give them freedom from the enslavement of sin and help them to see the new life that's coming, the promised land of being with God forever in his heaven. I thank you for this reminder. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.